What if well-being is just the baseline? What if we could lead a life of purpose and pleasure? Welcome to the Leading with Pleasure podcast. I'm your host, Gretchen Fox Palmer, and here we will explore this next edge of life and work. Before we can lead a meaningful life rich with purpose and pleasure, we must, must, must prioritize our own mental and emotional well-being. In this episode, I chat with trauma-informed educational psychologist, Emily Santiago. She's also the founder of Center for Cognitive Diversity, where I did my own reflective supervision training, which is a large part of the framework for MTO's Peer Conversations program. We talked about how stressful living has become so normalized, we don't even recognize how much stress we experience. Talk about making big life decisions that support a healthier lifestyle. Why more self-care? Why more than self-care? We need collective well-being. How emotional capacity building is so critical to employees, but overlooked by employers. Why there's not enough therapists in the world to support everyone in need and how reflective supervisors are a scalable solution for emotional well-being. And finally, how Peer Conversations offers the missing support teams and leaders need to gain emotional capacity and resiliency. FYI, this was recorded right before I moved to Austin. We discussed living in beautiful Ashland, Oregon. I hope you enjoy. Hello. Hi, Gretchen. How are you today? I'm doing great. So I want to introduce yourself, but before you do, I was just going to share how we met. So I'm friends with your sister, Sarah Shaw. And Sarah Mm -hmm. is an amazing... You moved here from the Bay Area? Yeah, from Oakland in 2018. In 2018. And then we're in uh, the same friend group that is an expat community, right? It's basically like this giant Mm -hmm. group. Giant is a relative term. This big group of men that are all from where? Australia? The Commonwealth? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. South Africa. My my partner's from Australia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then my husband's from UK big group of people. And then, so it's a combination of people, the expat people. I think everybody probably lived in the Bay Area also. Do you think? Is that our group? More or less, yeah. Or LA. And then also all moved here basically for lifestyle. So that we have... Quality of life. Quality of life, beautiful place, really prioritizing nature. And I think it's interesting because so many people are making this choice right now. Since... I feel like this was the loveliest place ever to have been during this pandemic. Do you feel the same? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I feel really lucky. I think we're talking about pleasure and just noticing what you need and responding to it is how you experience that. And in 2017, my commute was almost three hours a day in the Bay Area. And as a mom, I wanted to spend time with my kid and have work-life balance that just wasn't going to happen. And coming up and visiting my sister in Ashland on weekends, it just felt like 
the stress that I had was carrying with me all the time just disappeared. And I think if I hadn't gone to Ashland, I wouldn't have noticed how much stress I was feeling. It just felt normal. But then when I take a break and see my sister, it just felt, wow, it doesn't have to be this way. And then my mom retired to this small town and that just made a lot of sense to be closer to family for the first time in 20 something years was a choice that I wanted to make. Yeah, exactly. About pleasure. That's a theme of this podcast, clearly. And all the ways that things are pleasurable for us. I think pleasure... I have a blog post I'm writing about pleasure needs a rebrand because people think Mm. about it so often. The word with this taboo word when why is pleasure a bad thing? We can get into that later. Or where we have this visceral reaction Mm. to the word when things like being able to spend more time with your daughter are pleasurable, right? And then being able to like Mm -hmm. not drive three hours in traffic. And I'm sure a lot of the people that might listen to this are also either LA, Bay Area, used to Portland, that kind of crazy traffic. And people are making this choice that we made a few years ago, more and more right, right now, and just really asking themselves, what do they want? And prioritizing quality of life more than ever. So I know that you made that choice too. And then I think it's pretty interesting before we get into your career part of your background, just about that you not only moved to this small town, but also bought this beautiful property with a pond and a creek that runs through it. And you have chickens. You really got all in, huh? Yeah, I think that we'll talk about my focus at work, but it's been on more and more on collective well-being and having this experiment of kind of revitalizing an old little rundown farm and turning it into a communal space with an art gallery. And my sister lives here and we have artists in residence and yeah, raise animals. My daughter walks through a field to go to middle school and she doesn't even have to go on the road or get in the car. It has been an amazing opportunity. And so I'm really grateful for that. Yeah, it's really peaceful there and it's great that you get to enjoy mm-hmm. that and work, right? It's like we can have both. Yeah, and we need to. I think more and more people are like realizing that the stress level that they maintained was at the limits of their capacity. And then when we took on way more stress collectively with the pandemic and economic stressors and political stressors, it just was so toxic. And it wasn't that it was even a choice. It was a necessity for people to make a shift to change in order to make something sustainable that they could continue to do what they love to do or do what they need to do. In a healthier way. And that kind of, I think, is a good bridge to like your background and your focus. I know you have a thought leader, a lot of thought leadership around burnout and stress in the workplace. And then also... You had a South by Southwest talk the year that South by first year of the pandemic that wound up getting canceled. So why don't you just give us a little background on you and where your focus is? Sure. Yeah, that was the first weekend it felt like of the pandemic when it was like, oh, this is really happening. Before that, we were in a little bit of denial. But the first weekend of March 2020 was... South by Southwest. And the topic of my talk was going to be burnout as a community issue, not an individual one, which I think has been a theme that more and more of us have realized over the last couple of years is we can't get through this alone. We can't get through this with self-care. We really need each other. 
And yeah, that's been my passion for a while. My background, I started as a teacher in Boston and then I was recruited to teach in Oakland. And even in that transition, early on in my career, getting hit with the impact of trauma in a community was so eye-opening to me and just sent me on a trajectory to follow like emotional well-being, not only for my students, but also for myself and my colleagues as, as a focus in order to do the work I do. So I was a teacher in Oakland and then overseas. And then I came back, studied and became a school psychologist. And a big part of my work about 12 years ago, early on, was transforming school climate and culture. And we did a lot of work in changing some of the toughest schools in the Bay Area that were deeply impacted by trauma and turning them from places where I felt scared to be on the campus, where student, like the majority of students reported being scared to be on the campus, to schools where I would have sent my own children. And I was really proud of that work. It was amazing work. It took a lot of my energy, but it was work with a huge team, with community partnerships. But I felt like we were just responding to crises instead of actually changing systems to prevent them. So then after doing that work for about 10 years, nine years when I moved to Ashland, I shifted and created my own company to do this work in a more systemic way. So that I started a company called the Center for Cognitive Diversity. It's a mouthful. I had been teaching at Cal State East Bay in the ed psych department. And really our focus was to not look at the deficits of people, but to celebrate people's strengths. And that's what cognitive diversity is about, whether that's in schools or that's in the workplace just that mentality of shifting from what's wrong with me, what's wrong with you, to what are your strengths, what are you using to get to overcome adversity. And I think that is uh, a really important shift that we all need right now, especially in this time where there's so much adversity. We look at pathologizing what could be our survival skills as a society. And if we shift that and celebrate what we're doing to survive, then we're much more likely to, to have improved outcomes. I founded the Center for Cognitive Diversity and I created some certification programs, training programs for teachers around trauma-informed practices because I felt like a lot of people were doing great work, but we weren't noticing it. We weren't elevating it. We weren't empowering the people that were doing that work. And so with this certification program, it's validating efforts. It's aligning the work people are doing with the latest research and enabling people to really be seen as the experts in their community and shift those systems. So in the last four years, we've worked with about 150 educators, principals, professors, mental health professionals in schools to change the way schools work. So from the discipline policies to the way we give emotional support to educators to yeah, just the way that we teach has shifted in response to the, the needs of children. So, yeah, I've been really proud of that work. And now, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say thank you for yeah. <laughs> doing that work. We've, you know, mm -hmm. I don't think anybody, especially right now, can undervalue how much pressure teachers are under. And that's mm -hmm. without even 
talking about schools that have so much trauma, students with so much trauma, where we can talk more and more about how everybody has trauma, but Mm -hmm. some obviously skew to way more on the other side of that. And and then you add in the pandemic and we see teachers just need so much more support. So yeah, thank you for trying to create that change. Not, I think it's important that you shifted that from doing it more on that one-on-one or when the, in the school that you're in or the district that you're in versus being able to get above that. And I think anyone that's in the business community that's listening to this understands trying to tackle those scale opportunities to really say, okay, this is bigger. How can I do this bigger? So that's through the training program. Yeah, I think it's universal. It started as responding to the needs of educators and responding to their emotional needs, because if we don't respond to their emotional needs, how can they be safe, stable, supportive people for children? It's really impossible. So that was my focus. And we've seen transformational results when we hold space and listen to educators and build their emotional capacity. They're able to do great work. But I think that's universal for for everybody. If you want people to be productive and happy and have the work that they do be sustainable, they need a supportive community that's pretty agile. I think that's what we create you have to have a space where we're responsive to each other's needs, even when they change. I think a lot of the time we have a fixed view of ourselves and others that like as teachers, it's always that I'm giving to other people, right? Like I'm always in that space of uh, neglecting my own needs to support the needs of others. And that's not healthy. And that's not what we should have. Because in the schools I worked in, we'd, we'd do great work. We'd increase our test scores, increase our school climate scores. But at the end of the day, we were losing 30% of our staff and having that level of turnover isn't sustainable. You always have to build community again. You have to train people in procedures. You have to help them build relationships and understand the, the students they're working with. And the same thing with the workplace now. If you have high rates of turnover, it's not an individual problem. It's a community problem. What are you doing to give people that support? What are you doing to help people feel connected? And how do you give them agency and control and some sort of choice and over what they're doing? So yeah, so that's the model that we've been developing and we've seen great results. Yeah, I want to talk more about that because I have personally seen these results. So I talk very publicly about this. It's a big kind of through line of my work now, which is that as you know, I hit severe burnout last year and mm-hmm. came to you because I had seen all these amazing stats out of your program about with educators and first responders about how I think there's the one that's like 83% of people that do this program show drastic reduction in burnout, which I thought was such a mm-hmm. huge stat. I came to you, tell me what is this magical program and will it work for yeah. me? And I remember you just being like, I'm not surprised you feel this way. Work, the workplace for the most part isn't designed around, there's not infrastructure around emotional well-being. And that solution that you have that I found and then now have been running a program for after being certified through your system with leaders, which totally agree, this is a universal problem and it works for everybody. But I'd like to just kind of 
help people understand what it is. So what we're talking about right now and have been is reflective supervision, right? That's the... Yeah, we call ours TIERS, Trauma-Informed Reflective Supervision, and it's a model of peer support. And I think how I came to it and why t- leaders need it is that when you, the more isolated you are, the more you're vulnerable to burnout. And that just really means that people aren't understanding your experience. And if you're running a company, you don't have a lot of colleagues that you're connecting with who understand what you're going through and understand the demands that you're facing. You're supporting the emotional needs of a lot of other people, but who's supporting yours? So I think the model works really well for leaders as well. I think it goes back to, as an educational psychologist, like what are the mechanisms that build resilience? And part of it is that our body gets flooded with cortisol when we're stressed and that helps us survive. Increases our blood sugar so we can run faster. It decreases our need for sleep. And it's a temporary solution to an acute threat, but it's not supposed to be a long-term solution. And in our society now, we've had cortisol rushing through our body constantly from the stressors and the demands of our lifestyle. And that takes a toll. One of the things that gets rid of that cortisol in our body is oxytocin. And that comes from connection. Oxytocin actually just metabolizes and eliminates the cortisol in our body. And if we don't have that connection, if we don't have that feeling of being seen and understood and experiencing empathy from other people, then we're seeking activities that kind of mask that level of stress. We're just like distracting ourselves from how stressed we are. And I think I was in that state for years, just not actually eliminating the stress, just like continuing to cope and distract myself with it. And so when we create uh, support systems that produce oxytocin, where we feel supported and heard and understood, then we're actually creating something sustainable where people can continue to do challenging things, continue to support others in a way where they feel good too. Yeah, it's amazing. And when you told me, I feel like it's just this kind of magical thing that's, no, we don't have to live like this. There is an actual solution. And it's also not that complicated. It's just, you just need to have to know about it and a commitment to do it. So let's talk about a little bit how it works. So there's, and we collaborated. So I've been running one under MTO for the Conscious Leadership Collective that's been um, mm-hmm. hand-selected, invite-only. I have not opened that up to other people so that I can really dial it in and, and make sure everybody that's starting it is getting a lot of value. I know you've been running your programs and then training people for quite some time. So you want to just walk through just like the, the structure up? Sure. So yeah, it comes out of a model of peer support that was in early childhood ed, actually, people that went in to do home visits for families in crisis. And so I took that model because I was looking around, what is a solution to to the burnout that teachers are experiencing, the, the turnover? And therapy isn't a sustainable solution. I can't have everybody who joins my program get one-on-one therapy. And while I think therapy is great, it also isn't perfectly aligned with like professional needs because your therapist doesn't totally understand what it's like to do your job. So reflective supervision puts you in a small group of people with a facilitator who really understand your job. They might be in a different part of the country, 
but they're doing similar work to you as you. So when you start talking about what's going on for you, they're there with you and they get it. So what we've been doing is we train people to be facilitators who have a foundation of like empathy skills. They may be a therapist, but they can be a mindfulness practitioner. They can be somebody who has great communication skills. It doesn't require those thousands of hours of training that a therapist has to actively listen to somebody. So we train people in that model, and then they facilitate groups. And often experiencing peer support in a structured way gives you the training to then facilitate that yourself. So it's parallel relationship where people are providing support, but then those people that are receiving the support then have the emotional capacity and the experience to provide it to other people. So if I'm providing reflective supervision to a group of teachers, they often tell me like they're going into their schools and the way that they're listening to people has changed. So their colleagues are coming up to them and talking to them about what's going on and seeking them out to be that supportive, empathetic person. Other people have told me their entire relationship with their spouse has changed because they become a better listener and they're better able to notice their own emotional needs without waiting until they're just having a crisis or just like reacting instead of responding. So I think it is just about modeling the kind of relationship that you want other people to have. So For me, it's modeling the relationship for teachers that I want them to have with their students and and the families they work with. For business leaders, it's modeling that relationship that I want you to have with your employees. And that is really rooted in non-judgment, empathy, like slowing down, having the curiosity to listen to somebody without jumping in with solutions, trusting people that they can find their own answers if they're heard. So having that space where people can experience that increases the ability for you to provide that space for others. Yeah, it's been really profound from my end, from the short amount of time that I've been running the program with leaders. And I've seen all of that unfold. One of the things I'd like to just talk about the format a little bit, basically Mm -hmm. a 90-minute call once a month, we're doing 90-minute calls for groups of four or five, plus a facilitator. And then one mm-hmm. of the things that's really interesting is starting with... So first, there's an introduction where you teach everybody, everybody has community agreements, everybody agrees to the things that we're talking about to participate. And we give them some tools and stuff, which we can talk about more to, to be able to do this work. But then once the group starts once a month, we start with that body scan. And so a little bit of a mm-hmm. thing to like just get people into their bodies. Everybody's coming from whatever time of day it is. They were stuck in traffic. They just left a contentious meeting. They're trying to force their toddler to eat breakfast, whatever those things that everybody's doing Mm -hmm. to just show up and just let that go and get in their bodies for this so we can all be present with each other. So that one thing that takes three minutes at the beginning of the call, much less everything else that happens... I have now had two different leaders take that into their businesses. 
One said that she did it for an annual meeting that is just always a really difficult meeting. It's stressful. She said it was the best meeting they've ever had, ever. That it just created like everyone was more open. Everybody was communicating in a way that was more thoughtful and conscientious of everybody else. And she was just like, it was super productive and healthy. And then another woman said she started doing it at the beginning meetings too. And this is just them after having two or three sessions. They're already taking that back in the world. Is this the type of thing that you see all the... Yeah, I think we've talked about it. We call it reflective supervision, but it really is transformational supervision. You're taking a model of when do you ever get to like practice active listening? When do you ever get to just feel deeply heard? in a group. It's rare. So when you have that experience, you can provide that. You have an example of that to give to others. And as soon as people experience it, if we're talking about pleasure, it is like a a really joyous feeling to just connect stories and have a space like that. I was thinking coming on this podcast, what's my definition of pleasure? And it really is just being able to notice and respond to either my needs or other people's needs or the environment I'm in. And I think that's what you're talking about. People are slowing down. They're noticing and responding. It's not just highly reactive. It doesn't feel pleasurable to be in a highly reactive setting where it's, we've got this sense of urgency and we've got to do all this stuff <laughs> right away. And it's pretty exhausting. And so just shifting that to going from reacting to noticing and responding is a pleasurable experience. And I think it does become a little, I wouldn't say addictive, but it it spreads really quickly. Like people are always like, okay, I want to start these groups for others. Yeah, contagious. Thank you. Yeah. And knowing that you don't have to be a therapist. We set really good boundaries that this isn't therapy. We have some expectations. It's therapeutic. And if you need one-on-one therapy to really work through some experiences you've had, Sometimes it's a good segue into that, but it's not trying to replace it, but it's giving people a therapeutic experience that they can actually provide other people. Active listening is therapeutic. And if more people did that, we could respond to the collective trauma of the pandemic and climate change and everything else that we're faced with, racial injustices that we're trying to talk about. These are great spaces to deal with tough things in a way that makes us more hopeful and talk about trauma all the time and I feel a lot of joy because we're finding solutions to Mm. things that we've normally been reacting to yeah so I think the group even if we're really busy making that time is everyone finds that valuable because they're when you're slowing down and reflecting and somebody's hearing you you're hearing yourself more clearly and you're finding your own solutions to things that you haven't had the opportunity to reflect on really well so that's exactly what I see. It's there's the like the reflection is like a 360, right? Because someone we have some prompts, so that creates a, a space of reflection for people to ask themselves what are mm-hmm. they feeling, what are they going through, and then I see exactly what you're saying, where then people reflect on their own emotional experience at work currently, and then the combination of live work, right? How they're a lot have kids. So then it's both things that are compounding. And 
they solve their own problems so often by saying it out loud. There was a woman that was like reflecting on where she was at. And she was just like, all of a sudden she got really emotional. She was like, I just realized I'm sorry. I'm crying right now. And, but I just realized I haven't spent time with a friend in a year because of Mm. the pandemic and all these factors for her. And she was like, I need to schedule that. I need to prioritize that. She did that. It was this beautiful like arc of, whoa, I didn't realize how stressed out I really am. If I'm honest, I've just been pushing it down. And now that I am, I realize I'm not putting in place the things that I need to support myself. Oh, I need to do that. And it it was just like, and she did. And so like within a month of seeing her again, she seemed like almost a different person. She looked physically different from... yeah. Stress has a not only a mental toll, but an emotional toll, but it has a physical toll. So when you're able to address stress in a sustainable way, you physically feel better. And sometimes we wait until we have physical health problems before we realize how much stress we're under because we've ignored the other signs for so long. And I love that you're creating that space, Gretchen. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm so glad that I found it through you. I just, it's one of the most fulfilling things I've ever done to be a part. It really is. And to be a part of this for other people, it just, and, and the fact that it's having such a profound shift. One of the big shifts that I'm seeing with the leaders is a lot of the people that have been there and you were referencing this with leaders in the beginning of this talk conversation about how they give and give, right? Those in my program specifically for conscious leaders. So leaders who are intentional about trying to create better companies, not we're like mm-hmm. really trying to dismantle the old corporate toxic behaviors that we've all known and brought up with and also perpetuate. And I always like mm-hmm. to make sure I'm really clear being a conscious leader is not something that you get to this in place and you're like, yay, I'm a conscious leader. No, it's a practice like yoga. This is something that you do day in and day out, and you're you're always faced with making tough decisions. But all these leaders that are doing this work to be empathetic and caring, but don't usually have someone doing it for them. And then also quite the opposite, can be so hard on themselves in order to make sure that they can maintain this for everybody else and don't Mm -hmm. give much to themselves. And that's the biggest transformation I think I'm seeing quickly is people saying stuff like when they come back, because also another part of the format is we do the body scan and then they go around and share their like wins from the last month since we've seen them. Mm -hmm. That's part of the format. So they share their wins. And now the wins so often are, I took off for the weekend and shut off my phone. I took off Mm -hmm. the holidays and did not answer. And then chastised another executive who did try to email and say, don't, we have to role model taking time off. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden, that's one of the biggest things that they're like doing stuff for themselves to have prioritize their own emotional well-being instead of thinking of that as a nice to have on the bottom of the list, being like, no, it goes to the top of the list. Because when you're healthy, right, there's this whole ripple effect that impacts everybody else, which I think is what you were saying you got to from this, that you found this trying to figure out how to do this. Did I get that right? Yeah. Looking 
when you're noticing burnout, the way we used to view burnout, at least in, in my career, was you'd see somebody who was showing signs of burnout and you judged them, you looked at them as a failure or somebody toxic. And that's what we talk about in trauma-informed work is what are trauma responses? What do they look like? It's not a personality flaw. But if you don't understand that, you see it as a personality flaw, you push somebody away, you judge them, you isolate them, and that only intensifies the behaviors. It doesn't alleviate them. And then you get to a point where either somebody's got a lot of toxic behaviors in the workplace that spreads to others, or they leave, or they just become numb and not as effective as they could be. And that's not healthy. So instead, when we shift the way we look at people, we shift the way we look at ourselves, and we meet ourselves with more compassion and others with more compassion, then you're able to create like sustainable solutions. And a lot of it is that for so long, we just ignore those needs and develop some unhealthy habits and ways of coping. And then we don't see a way out. So this is giving people a way out. And I think it is through, it has to be with each other. So part of my work is about being beyond self-care. So there's the self-care piece, which can be helpful in, in certain settings when you have a manageable amount of stress. But sometimes, like the people you're working with, people I'm working with, we're, it's beyond self-care. We've got more stress than we can handle on our own. And it's also about talking to people about what are the barriers to asking for help. And there's a lot of barriers in our society to being vulnerable or courageous enough to, to ask somebody for help and lean on somebody. And during COVID, if your family all has COVID, you can't just pretend everything's fine or somebody loses their job or God forbid you, you lose a family member, somebody you love. You're going to need help. <laughs> and if you don't ask for it, then we wait for a crisis to happen. If we're uncomfortable asking for help when we need it, then people just leave the job or end up having a mental health crisis or a physical crisis. And we want to be more proactive about our health and destigmatize that need to ask for help. And I think talking with people that understand you, you can realize, wait, I am in a space where I can't do that 70-hour work week I've been doing for so long, or I can't take on one more thing because it makes somebody else happy. I need to set a boundary just so that I can do my job well or be the parent I want to be or something like that. Yeah. I One of the things that you had brought up a little earlier that I so much is going in my mind because I'm definitely one of the people that I've realized through the dynamic empowerment self-assessment that is a tool that you have and then a tool that we use for the program about how there's a question you rate yourself on like asking for help and I always rate myself really mm -hmm. low there and I don't, I guess I could speculate, but do you know, why don't we ask for help? I do trainings with companies and schools and stuff and I ask people that. We talk about, and we could talk about dynamic empowerment in the quadrants, but we talk about what are the barriers to asking for help? And people share a whole host of reasons. One is they're made to feel inadequate if they do. They're made to feel like something's wrong with them if they do. Another is everybody else must be as stressed out as me, so I don't want to burden them. Another one is, I don't know how to, I haven't practiced it. So yeah, there's a wide range of reasons we don't ask Can for I help. Ask you yeah. to, let me ask you to, I see, and one of the things that's so cool with the program too is 
When I have a mixed gender group, how much interesting stuff happens that we talk about the role of gender and how we have a lot of assumptions about each other. And then when we're talking about, we're like, oh, you experienced that too as a man. Wow. I thought only women have this perfectionism narration after doing something where they're like kicking themselves about everything that went wrong. And for a man to be on the group and be like, nope, I do that too. We're like, really? Fascinating things like that. Mm-hmm. You're sharing univer- the power of universality, feeling like you're not alone in an experience is, is amazing. I love this topic so much. One thing yeah. that you taught me with this, which has been such a relief, is that all these things that we think of as maladaptive behavior, now I've learned them as trauma exposure responses and that you taught, and now I get to help teach other people that these are coping skills. And so instead of judging ourselves, because there's the two things that happen. There's the one thing of like how you're behaving what are you, or what you're dealing with, like you have depression. But then there's a second piece mm-hmm. of it where you're kicking yourself for the thing. So you're depressed, you're having trouble getting up and moving and being productive, but then you're mad at yourself and judging yourself for not doing it. And so it's this combination yeah. to shift that to say, no, what you've been able to develop has allowed you to survive. You need to thank yourself for having mm-hmm. this skill. And then when you notice and get more, have the time to reflect on these things, you can more choose because you have more awareness. And that's where self-awareness increases from this program. You have more self-awareness mm-hmm. and you're not just on autopilot. So then you get to have the choice of, okay, am I going to use this tool that I've had and that works for me, or am I going to choose another option and and can I choose another option? Absolutely. So much there. Like first, it's the noticing and responding, right? That gives you pleasure. It's not like the absence of adversity. It's just being able to notice and respond to your needs. And the work of the trauma exposure response is Laura Vandernut Lipsky's work. She wrote Trauma Stewardship and the Age of Overwhelm. And so we look at her framework of the 16 signs of trauma exposure response. And what I I love about that, when I first read it about, yeah, like six years ago or so, when I read it, I had 13 out of the 16 signs. I was dealing with, I was a case manager and a a school psychologist in a a community that was deeply impacted by by gun violence and, and poverty. And so I just, I had so much trauma exposure response I hadn't even noticed. And when I shifted and looked at it that way, then I can lean into it and see why that's happening rather than fight it. Like you said, people, even for children, one example is kids who have experienced some form of abuse might be more more likely to say no to adults, right? And then they get punished for saying no to adults. But if you look at it, as a survival response, there's a really good reason why they're saying no in that moment. And instead of fighting that, you see that that's, that's a good skill. You need to have that skill. How do I honor that skill, but also help you shape and feel safe that you don't need that, that you can say no to adults in, a, in an adaptive and helpful way. And the same thing with us as professionals, noticing like these responses and not seeing it as something that needs to be fixed about me. If I see it as something that needs to be fixed, I keep fighting it and try to eliminate it. Instead, it's kind of like Marie Kondo, like everything in your home before you throw it away or give it away. You're like, 
thanks for being here for me. I really enjoyed having you around. Bye. The same thing with those responses. If you've been more dogmatic, more rigid in your beliefs, which a lot of people in America are right now, maybe notice that and be like, that's a stress response. That's what happens when my agent, I lose a lot of agency and choice and control in my life. When that happens to me, which has happened to all of us in the pandemic, I'm going to respond by being more firm and forceful about what I need and try to fight for, for control over either my body or what's happening in my life. And noticing that you need that is great. And then But slowing down and seeing, oh, why do I need that? And then thinking about how do I want to respond? Because if we're not conscious of it, we just, we can get to a place where we're really rigid. And then it becomes something that isn't what was designed to be helpful, quickly becomes something that's not helpful. I also want to talk about when you said that 13 out of 16 trauma, because I think most people, when they look at it, they have all sorts of different responses that I've noticed. One, so she referenced the author of this, and then we have basically slides with this information on it. But we have people scan through these words, basically, and then how trauma exposure response, like it can be, for example, why don't you give, like disassociation, I think is a good one. We just spent a whole hour recently talking about disassociation and how that is a really great coping mechanism and survival mechanism that has gotten us far. And a lot of times leaders tend to have a lot of these things because they've been able to cope actually very well. So they've developed on these things. But there was a comment that came up one time and a woman said, oh, I'm not really experiencing very many of this because I've done all this personal work. And I was like, okay, thank you. I think when you've done, for sharing, I think when you've done this personal work, that sometimes it really does show up that you're not dealing with these things. However, when stresses increase out of your control as well in your life, whether that's you have aging parents, you have little kids now doing Zoom school at home, you're supposed to be working, your own health, you have a health scare, as you start building up these these stressors, then you start seeing more of these things, right? This is not a static thing. You don't just do work on yourself and then you're never going to have any of these trauma exposure responses, right? Yeah. How does that kind of... That's the dynamic empowerment model, right? I was doing this work, doing peer support, and we were trying to find a way to measure where we're at. What's a good self-assessment? And there's uh, Maslach's burnout inventory. Dr. Maslach is a researcher in burnout at UC Berkeley. So she has great inventory. There's a professional quality of life scale that's often used in research. They're great, but they are often rooted in what's there's a scale where it goes from good to bad, right? There's a negative side to it. And in my work, I wanted to find something that was free of pathology, that you could just say, this is where I'm at. doesn't mean there's something wrong with me. We're so quick to want to see what's wrong with ourselves. And so I was looking for a model like that and I didn't find it. So then I developed this tool and it did come from just slowing down a little bit, right? Like for years I'd been studying trauma-informed practices, and resilience at the same time. Those were my two separate kind of areas of focus. And then one day I was actually out near Mount Shasta and I happened to be by myself in the woods, which rarely ever happens. And I was doing this meditation and I realized you can take both of those measures. You can take like measuring your own trauma response 
and measuring your own resilience and put them together. And then you get quadrants. And yeah, I could show it as a tool, but basically you cycle between those four quadrants and it's not like one of them is a bad place to be. It just is where you're at right now. And it's more, we have to notice what we need in the and respond to it. And when we're not able to respond to it, that's whether it's because we lack self-awareness or because we we don't have the ability to respond to it because of societal limitations, like economic restraints, whatever it is, then, then we're getting into a state of crisis, but it's not our own individual flaw. So yeah, trying to, to see that, noticing how our levels of resilience change and our levels of stress change over time as a normal thing and checking in with ourselves enough to notice what we need in that moment is what it's all about. I've been saying about that tool and and this practice in general, how it helps you gauge where you're at with emotional capacity. And I asked groups, how does, do you know the term emotional capacity? And a lot of times nobody does. And and I just Mm use the example. I'm like that feeling when you are so overwhelmed, you are, you're so like, or you've been doing so much personal work. You're just kind of, I kind of got to get away from myself. Like I need to dissociate. Like I need to like have a drink right now. I walk in the door. I want to drink. I want to turn on trash TV and just numb out that feeling where you're like, I cannot take one more input. I'm like, that's for me how I describe being at full emotional capacity. And that so much of this assessment and doing this kind of work is being more self-aware on where you're at so that hopefully you start finding it before you're at the red line mm-hmm. that you can start sensing. And I think the tool helps do that to sense, oh, you're starting to eke into too much going on and overwhelm. How can you be proactive, pausing and doing what you can to back out of that instead of just keep going, take out one more thing, keep shutting it, pushing it aside? Yeah, because we see if I'm always the person that takes care of other people and then something happens in my life, you know, where I don't have the same emotional capacity to do that. When do I shift? I still, people still have that expectation of me. That's normally what I do. I'm always the person giving. What helps me understand when I'm supposed to be the person receiving, when I'm supposed to be the person asking for support? It's really hard to figure that out, whether, especially people like first responders or teachers that are that their careers are always about caring for other people nurses and and doctors in this time like the impact that they've been through it, the system hasn't been set up for them to check in with themselves and say actually in this moment I normally can do this level of intensity but I need to scale it back a little bit today because I've got two sick kids at home and I haven't slept in three days like whatever it is and I think well, that's, that's what, what it's pro- about is is the destigmatizing and also the proactive part of starting to be yeah. aware of where you're at and not just blindly going through life like the mm-hmm. same always at the same capacity, but realizing that you're not at the same capacity all the time when you have a lot of stressors. And so you can make different yeah. choices. And by making those choices is where you actually resolve moving into burnout. And if for those people that have been through severe burnout, it is very damaging. I've been doing this work to heal myself from burnout 
for now, I don't know, six, eight months, eight months maybe. And I, a couple of weeks ago, I thought I was over it. And then something happened. And I just felt that kind of like fragility in myself where I was like, oh, like it's not all the way healed. And it's been a long time now. Like getting into severe burnout is so much um, harder to recover from than learning these tools and starting to proactively support yourself so that you can manage it right before it gets up. Yeah, I think that's what it's all about, proactive mental health. Even therapy is often a tool that's used as an example in workplaces, right? Like you have your EAP and you get your sessions. People often tell me like, when am I supposed to use that? And I'm often waiting to use that until there's a crisis, but that's not when you're supposed to use it. Like once there's a crisis, it's so much harder to recover from it. And tears or reflective supervision is proactive. It's not waiting for a crisis to occur. It's giving you support to prevent that. And I use emotional capacity. I talk about it as as a metaphor with a sponge, right? That sometimes when we have this full emotional capacity, it's like a dry sponge. I can take on a lot. I can respond empathetically to others. I notice my own needs really well. I can practice that. But over time, you just absorb that that stress, you absorb the the needs of others, and you can become like that saturated sponge. Like you're talking about, you're in that state of just like numbness. You don't even notice your own feelings anymore. You're disconnected from your relationships, perhaps. It's harder to play with your kids. You're more short-tempered. You don't regulate your emotions as, as well. And then you can replenish your emotional capacity. You can wring out that sponge and that self-care. But there are times like you're talking about where you can't self-care your way out of it. You're like that saturated sponge sitting in a sink of water and the faucet's turned on. It's just, you can try wringing it out, but you're not going to get dry. Like it's just way more than you can handle. And those are the moments where it's, we need that collective care, where we need somebody to notice, wow, that person has way more than they can take on. And that's when we talk about self-care and people get upset. It's because they're a saturated sponge in water. They're just, I've tried that and it's not going to help me in that situation. What's going to help me is people who have the capacity noticing and coming together and reaching out. And with our assessment tool, I'll like have people do an evaluate. Like I worked with a school last week and everybody at the school took the assessment and then we did an anonymous poll. And 18% of people were in this seek empowerment quadrant. Like they were overwhelmed with stress. Like self-care was not going to help them. But there were 35% of people who were in empower others, like the dry sponge. When we know that, we know, hey, there's a big group of people who could be checking in with their colleagues a little bit more because they have the capacity. And that might shift. Somebody who's in that empower others quadrant might shift and, and suddenly need that help. And that's what a, a real like resilient community looks like. And we've forgotten that because we're so individualistic. It's like always about me. In this time, it has to be about not only noticing my needs, but noticing the needs of other people around me and responding to that and feeling connected. And that's as well. I, I just, so one of the things that when we start talking about this work and then the workplace, there's so much concern 
at companies. So we have a history of in society in America for sure and other westernized cultures and uh, other cultures everywhere actually where we expect people in the workplace to leave their selves at the door and by that we mean their emotions at the door and any personal life at the door and then to show up and try the goal that thinking came from the industrial revolution when we've been trying to make people into machines and in my opinion, the making of trying to make people into machines has led to real stat. 15% of people love their job. 85% don't. Mm. That was before COVID. I think a lot of those people quit their jobs. So good for you <laughs> if you're one of those people that quit a job you hate. But that when we're now bringing up like people need this emotional support, companies are so afraid of mm-hmm. opening up Pandora's box. They feel like, Oh, oh yeah. Lord, if we let emotions out of the box here, it's going to implode. We're going to lose productivity. It's just going to be a mess. And one of the things that I'm propagating a lot with my leaders is how one thing that's great about this model is the containment baked in it, right? Because it's we're doing this for 90 minutes. Everybody has roughly 20 minutes to share. And then at the end, I always shift everybody back into from the heavy state into some other thing that we talk about, I guess, pendulation, right? To move them into either housekeeping or something to just lighten it. So then everybody goes back to work without being immersed in whatever difficult topic we talked about. But the fact that this is contained, it's this is what leaders need to understand about the fact that, number one, we are not going to be able to exclude emotions from people anymore. It creates this global economic crisis and injustice, giant amount of injustices for people by making a disassociation between people's head and their hearts and their emotions and their brains. Like, it's just not sustainable. It's not healthy. We have to do it a different way. That's clear. But now leaders need to know practices for like that you need to put in infrastructure, right? I think that's one of the messages for leaders is not only do you have to learn it yourself, which is what I'm focused on right now, but then organizationally, there has to be practices like this that, that allows people to have this experience, but also keeps it contained. And I know you've worked with some organizations you were just talking about with a lot of people. Have you faced this fear around, Oh God, we can't talk about emotions. Sure. Early on, I think before the pandemic, I was working with a big organization and they're like, talk about trauma-informed practices. And then I, I mentioned burnout and they didn't want me to come back ever again. I was like, oh, we don't talk about burnout. And I think... I just paused for a second. Like, okay, we have to talk about burnout. <laughs> so at that time when they said you don't want to talk about burnout, is it your sense that it's like, we want to maximize efficiency for people. So we don't want to talk about burnout because then we have to be responsible for, is that? I think so. I think that's what it was. Cause you know, I did the training, everybody had rave reviews. Like this was amazing. This is exactly what we need. And then the administration was, had set up a series of, of talks and was like, Nope, we're done. And I, and that doesn't normally happen. Now people are like, Oh my gosh, this is exactly what we, we need. People have said, thank you for doing this training. You're reminding me that I am human and I'm allowed to be human. And we have been part of dehumanizing systems. I think that's a big push too, is it's it's not pointing the finger at individuals. This isn't created by individuals. The fault isn't on any individual, even leaders of companies who are doing, setting up cultures that could 
lead to burnout. It really is that they're probably experiencing burnout too and lack the emotional capacity to just notice what their employees need. And if they don't have the space to feel that support, then how can they give it to other people? It really is shifting to systems. Also, there's a paradigm Mm -hmm. shift happening because so many of those leaders feel like this is the this is just how work is this is how i have always had to work and therefore mm-hmm. so do you which is so much why i want to focus on the leaders because if they start understanding like this is not healthy this is not okay it's not okay for you it's not okay for anybody else and start making space for having these conversations it's it sounds like you're mm-hmm. saying that the, the conversation is changing because of COVID. Like they're basically, the companies now realize this is not sustainable and we're not going to make yeah. it if we don't figure it That's always, that's one of the benefits of experiencing something so tragic is that the self-awareness is there. Before it was like trying to just get people to recognize that we're impacted by various forms of trauma and like stressors. And now people recognize that and they're wondering what to do about it. Before all my work was awareness. And now my all my work is what do we do about it? And we do need systemic solutions. Like the individual therapy, we don't have enough therapists to respond to the individual needs of burnout. If 67% of American workers, I think that was the Gallup poll before the pandemic reported that they we're experiencing significant levels of burnout. Well, what'd you say? We don't have enough. I think it was six. The Gallup poll was 67% of American workers reported either feeling sometimes or almost always burned out in there in the workplace. And yeah, we just don't have enough therapists for that. And often what happens is if you try and meet it with therapy, that's like having a surgeon at every urgent care clinic. They're so highly trained. They should be there for the people with specialized needs. And by teaching more people active listening skills and giving them a structure and a space to do that, you're, you have a scalable way to be proactive about mental health. Therapy isn't scalable. It's highly specialized. And it takes years and years to train a, a therapist. And That analogy with surgeons people helps. go through. Yeah. That analogy... And for those of you listening, I think we have a little bit of a delay. But the analogy with surgeons is perfect. I think that really helps people understand. It's not that we don't value surgeons, just like we're not valuing therapists. Actually, we're saying the opposite. They're highly valuable. So let's have mm-hmm. them, that expertise, work in the, where that expertise is the most of use and then create systems change and support that is more scalable for the volume of the need. Yes, exactly. And I think when people experience reflective supervision, that's a big part of the training. When they've experienced that relationship, then they can get the 12-week training to become a facilitator in the support. So that's much more scalable. And then it's that missing link in mental health. It's in between the mindfulness and the therapy, you've got the peer support piece that, that really, I think, is a good fit for most organizations. Yeah, I love it. I just, I keep saying that, but mm-hmm. it's, it is a real solution and it works. I think it's, that's why I wanted to have you on this podcast so that you could talk about it and just get more exposure to it. I would love to know, since I'm specifically focused on using this work for leaders and conscious leadership, what 
do mm-hmm. you envision conscious leadership or a, a world of conscious organizations? And that's what the business model, that's how business looks. Do you, what does that mean to you? What would that mean to you? Yeah, I think for myself, it is about more of noticing the collective, like individual gains are good. But if I'm in a society, like I've been very successful in my life. And if I'm living my life and not noticing their needs of people around me, I'm still not going to be happy. And the same thing with companies, like how do we work together more? How do we build resilient communities together so that you're not only economically successful, but you're part of a successful and thriving society. That's the ultimate goal. Like, how do you contribute to that? I think we've had a really exploitive model of capitalism where it's like, how much can I take from other people? How much can I take from the environment? And that is, is that's a dead end. We've seen the dead end now, emotionally, environmentally, culturally. And what we need now is a society where it's like, when I give to others, then I benefit as well. And that makes me feel good. I'm happier. My business thrives. So how do we create an economic model based on that kind of abundance and cooperation? I would one say. Thing, and, and I believe in it. Yeah. And one thing I love about your model, your empowerment assessment, is that when you're in that place where you're empower others because you're you're that dry sponge, you have plenty of emotional capacity. I, I just describe it as like you're on top of the world. You feel like you can take anything on. That part of the assessment feedback is that this is a good time to give to other people. And that encouragement of helping people be like, oh, when you're doing great, yeah, tur- turn that towards the collective. And how can you, you know, embody? And you don't have to do that all the time. I think we have a fixed mindset on everybody. Oh, once I start giving, I have to give all the time endlessly. And once somebody starts taking, they just take all the time endlessly. And that's not true. Once our needs are met, we just cycle and we respond to each other's needs. Yeah, I think you feel good. When you have surplus resilience, when you have surplus financial needs, like your needs are met and then self-care starts to feel boring, right? It doesn't, people are like, oh, let me just buy another car. Let me go on another vacation. Let me do this for myself. And it's just like an emptiness that they're not being able to fill. And what's going to fill that is, let me give to other people. I think like Kim Kardashian's a good example. Like she started to shift to like really addressing like flaws in the justice system and talked about how that gives her a lot of joy. Like people need to feel like I can do things for other people. That's what we're designed to do. That's what gives us that oxytocin. That's like helping other people. And when we have the ability to do that and the privilege to do that, we should. I think this is a very good segue. I 100% agree with you. I think it's a good segue. So one of the things about Emily is that she is like a little popcorn machine of ideas, always has some new creative idea. I can't even name all the ones that she's gone through. I would love for you to share, first of all, I'd love to know whatever's on top of your mind lately. And I'd also like for you to share your whale NFT concept. Oh, <laughs> yeah. 
I, I like projects and I like having the ability to follow through with different ideas. Like I started in art, we have a little farm and as a barn and we started a contemporary art gallery called Gembrel Gallery in there. I guess I have had that idea over some glasses of wine. I think Gretchen, we were chatting about that, but I think that one environmentally, my partner is in tech and he worked in the crypto space and then an executive in, in different tech spaces. And so I know a little bit about crypto and all of that. And so looking at NFTs as a solution for climate change, perhaps, is interesting to me. So what would that, we're talking about what would that look like? I hear a lot of people talk about what's the, how are we going to do carbon capture? And it's just another tech, you know, solution that we need to create and somebody's going to profit from. But actually the solutions to carbon capture are already there. Like whales are a great example. The IMF did a big research study that said whales are the best carbon capture technology on the planet right now. So why not, instead of inventing something new, why not create a way to just reduce the shipping lanes or something like that and support Whales. I don't know. That's a great example. Uh, no, it's a great example. Why talk about it? But Hold how on. do we fund that and fund it? Hold on, I'm going to back up for a second because I think I, I, I think my glasses of wine and your glasses early are in right. the morning, girl. <laughs> work, work, work together, okay. And I think where I thought it was cool. So knowing that whales are the biggest carbon capture technology that exists, which I had no idea. People listening may have not known that too. And then also that piece that actually whales are struggling right now because there's so much noise from all the shipping going back and forth that they can't hear themselves communicate. And that's how they, that's how they navigate. Yeah. Find a mate, navigate, communicate all that is through sound and that's being disrupted. So then if we need to, if we're killing and hurting the our best technology for reducing carbon capture, how can we encourage, incentivize the opposite and supporting them? So really, I think you were coming up with like, how can we use NFTs to help fund some of this stuff? So we were playing with, you buy this original NFT and then it's funding support for the whales and then your money is doing something good. I think there's a fairly... There's a DAO, which is one of the types of work that my client Icon works on, decentralized asset organization. I'm not sure if I have the A right. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of work happening in this space with crypto trying to align it around that value, creating more value, intrinsic value for stuff, projects like that. And then, yeah, so these are the type of conversations we have over wine, which are super fun. <laughs> do you have any? I am hopeful about that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any? Yeah. So I remember there was a Death Wish app. <laughs> That's, remember that con? Yeah. Yeah. Like people need to plan for the end of life before it happens. And with your digital profiles. What do we do with our di- digital? Yeah. With our digital stuff. And decide yeah. early, and decide in advance who mm-hmm. gets access to that, right? Okay, can yeah. you make sure my mother does not see the photos on my phone? Yeah, exactly. So that was one. 
I've talked to Joe Lubin from Consensus Ethereum about decentralized education. Can we create an app where we don't need grades anymore and you can just measure your achievements through attestations from others and stuff? So I like thinking about that. Like, how can tech shift from a system that I've seen it become like a exclusive community where it's not benefiting the, the greater whole sometimes to a really inclusive community where it, everyone is lives are improving because of it. So there's lots of possibilities there. Yeah. I love these kind of conversations. And I know this podcast, who knows who's going to listen to it, but it will mostly definitely be people closest to me and my friends. And they're the ones that, and you know, I'm sure our friends will listen to this podcast, love these conversations too. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you'd like to share? Yeah, I think that's it. If people want to learn more, they can, you know, check us out. We're cogdiv.org, C-O-G-D-I-V.org. And we're on uh, Twitter at Cogdiv Center. Or I'm at Emily Ed Psych. You can check me out there. But I love to continue these conversations. And Gretchen, I'm going to I'm gonna miss you. You're moving soon. It's been great. We'll have to have more virtual check-ins. Which I think so many of people right now are trying to get back to life and I definitely am. I'm looking forward to when I arrive South by Southwest is happening this year and it will start pretty much as soon as I get to Austin, which is crazy and fun. But I think that real life will pick up again and then maybe we can get your talk back on for South by for next year. There, That sounds great. And I hope many times before then. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for sharing with us.